You got to accentuate the positive. A little bit of feel good goes a long way. Welcome to ATP Radio. I'm your host, Karen Swain, teacher of deliberate creation, showing you how to accentuate the positive, the way to a better life. Your radio station is an example of the future existing right now. You're with Karen at Accentuating the Positive Radio. How are you this morning? And I have a really fascinating man with me on the phone, Dr. Ian Edwards. I spoke about him last week on the show. I saw a documentary done by a fabulous Australian filmmaker, Ben Matthews, made a documentary all about Ian Edwards, who years ago experienced a traumatic life experience and as a subsequence of it going through that experience, changed his whole outlook on life. And he's a fascinating man. We're going to chat with Ian all about that. Good morning, Ian. How are you? I'm well, thank you. And you? Thanks. I'm fantastic. Thanks for coming on the show. Good. Now, give us a bit of a rundown what happened. I have to say it was big in the news, but back then, 1989, was it? 1989, yes. I don't remember... Wednesday, August the 2nd, I think it was. Yeah, I don't remember the incident, but I've spoken to a lot of people about your story since I saw the documentary, Chrysalis, and everyone remembers it. Everyone remembers it. I was talking to a girl I'm sharing the Sydney apartment with, and she said, I remember. In fact, I went to him. He was my orthodontist. Wow. (laughs) So all those years ago, 25 years ago, your wife was murdered while she was at home during the day. Essentially, it was a robbery that went wrong. Apparently, the guy was in the house, and the house is two stories, and it was alarmed, and, but it was alarmed downstairs because you have to live upstairs. And so the, the, the police surmise, although they've never been able to work out exactly the de- these details, but the only way they can work it out is um, the guy climbs in over the balcony, and he's in the house, and she drives in, gets into the house, comes inside, switches off the alarm, comes inside, and then they meet somewhere inside the house. The guy turns out to be a workman, a tiler, who had laid some tiles in the house about 12 months before uh, with this gang of tilers. Margaret had a very good memory, and maybe she said, I know who you are, or get out, or whatever, and uh, there was a confrontation, then he hits her, I gather, and then he loses control and decides he better kill her in case she might recognise him. That's the, that's the summation. We don't have the exact details uh, from the person. It was something that was traumatic, obviously, for you and your three daughters. How old were your daughters at the time? They were about 10, 12 and 14. Yeah. One minute, you know, mum's loving them. And there, and next minute, there's not. She's yeah. not. Yeah. And because of this event, it sent you on an intense life journey, searching for why did this thing happen to me? Would that be the right... Yeah, that, that, it, it sent me on a search for meaning and understanding for two reasons. One was that I went back into the bedroom to get back into my house because that's where I'd found her body the next day. And because that was our home and we weren't going to give the home up. We discussed with the children, well, are we going to move out and go somewhere else? And everybody said, do that. We said, no, no, this is our home. My life is more than just Marguerite. It's all this, the children, the family and the house and everything. So we'll go, and the girl said, well, we'll go back and fight for it. We're not going to give it up. It's will you go back. So I went back the next night by myself into the house and into the bedroom to go back and just look at what had happened. And uh, when I went back into the bedroom, it was so horrifically painful, 
I couldn't cope with that and I think I almost die and I collapse on the floor. And I realise I'm beaten and I admit that. I'm beaten, I can't cope with this, what's happened here. Mm. And I think the only way I can survive this is to surrender something bigger than me. Mm. So I surrender to God on the floor, admitting I'm beaten. But the God was a God in my own mind of empowering love. And so I thought if I've surrendered to that, I'll get the love back, as you say, so you reap sort of stuff. And I wasn't religious and I didn't really believe in Christianity too much. Uh, but I was surrendering to God. If God was real, something would happen. And then, then I suddenly felt uplifted and the sense of negativity disappeared and, and I felt sort of whole again and I felt I could cope with everything. So I got up off the floor and said, right, we're coming back. Everything is okay. So that experience sent me on a search to try and find out what that experience was, yeah. what was happening. Yeah. And then after that, I couldn't work out why I wasn't feeling crushed. Mm. why I felt empowered to cope. Why did I feel that I could continue on? It didn't really matter. And there was this sense of empowering force that, that seemed to be holding me up, which I was interpreting was the love of God, you know, this grace that I'd surrendered to. And mm. the more I surrendered to it, the more I seemed to have it. Mm. So, so, so I, that sent me off in a quest. How was I standing there? Why wasn't I taking drugs? Why wasn't I drinking? Mm. How were we sleeping in the room? How were the children quite stable and going to school next day? They were all crying and, and grieving and there was pain and all that sort of thing. But essentially we were in two states. One, an inner state that was, yes, you're, you're coping, you're okay, and you're out of physical state, which was painful. It's but interesting doing what normally people thought people would do under those circumstances. Yeah, what you did, and I've, this has happened to me several times, is when you hit this in, intense emotion, and you just say, "Okay, enough. I can't cope with this feeling anymore." You sort of ask whatever you ask. You ask yourself. You ask the universe. You ask God. You ask the angels. You ask the aliens. I don't care what you call it. Mm-hmm. You ask for it to stop, and then you don the perspective of the witness, where you're looking at it, but you're not in it. That's right. It's the pain that drives you into that state of surrender. It's the pain that has you ask. It's the pain that has you ask, exactly. please stop. <laughs> Without the pain. But what I was asking for was um, the courage to cope. Just give the me the strength to cope. Give me the strength to cope. Yeah. And, and, I'd, and, you know, it would happen repeatedly. I mean, like it just didn't happen once. It happened for years. Mm. And, and I would have to get down on my knees on the floor again and be crying and, and, and surrender to this, I can't stand it, help me, help me, sort of mm. thing. Give me the strength to cope. And then there would be the sort of the, the experience again and then you'd sort of feel calm and then you'd feel okay. Mm. And so I felt, I, I felt physically connected with something else that I had never been aware of before. Oh, I love this. And, and for a man who didn't believe in God... No, I didn't believe in... I think it's fantastic. It reminds me of a story. One of my favourite teachers is Esther and Jerry Hicks, The Teachings of Abraham. And, and Jerry, who left the planet in November last year, actually, did something similar. He was a young man and he was suffering and he was trying to be successful. And he was failing and failing and failing and he, and he was somewhere in a church or in a park or somewhere where he felt at peace. He surrendered. He just said, I give up. I can't try any further. I just give up. I give up being who I am and I give up trying and I give up, you know, trying to get what I want. And he said that he, after that experience, he had this incredible feeling of joy. Well, that, that's it. That, that, that feeling is a feeling of, it's a really w- weird feeling. Um, what I found out of all this over all the years, something uh, quite a lot about myself, that I'm really quite kinesthetic 
and I'm very sensuous in terms of feeling, you know, <laughs> and I have a big intellect that tries to analyze everything. <laughs> because I, so, so I went into why was I grieving? Yeah. Um, why was I feeling so painful? What was, what was actually happening here? Okay, Margaret had died. She was dead. I had to get on with my life. Why was this all this happening? You know, people thought I was nuts. Uh, yeah. But the, the biggest issue that sent me on the search was the, the sense of, of that God was real. And I was experiencing it. And without that, we couldn't cope. And, and so I set out to find out what God was and how this was happening and what the process was as much as I could. I was going around telling people, you know, quite openly. They say, it's terrible, Marguerite died. And I said, yes, but, you know, really the good thing is I found that God is real. And they would look at me like I was nuts. <laughs> and I would say that. Now, go off and buy Scott's textbook, The Road Less Traveled. You might understand what I'm saying. <laughs> And the bookshop sold out at Bondi Junction. But, you know, <laughs> the bookshop sold out at Bondi Junction. It literally did. <laughs> but the God of your understanding, because everyone, you know, to use, I don't use the word God because no, everyone has a different really a bad idea of what God is. And then religions for years have been trying to tell us what God is. Yeah, that's the worst part. So it's, That is the worst part. It's not a word I use. I say life, love, well, the I, universe. I, I, I call it, the, you know, you can call it the divine. The divine, um, the creator. You can call it um, the all or you can call it consciousness. The matrix. The, whatever it is. The unified field. The unified field, <laughs> um, pure absolute consciousness, or, you know, whatever. I called it love. Yeah. Um, I called God love. God became love. Love became God. And the, and the problem was that in the experience, what was driving me into that was the pain. So love, God, and pain all became one and the same. Um, mm. It was a really sort of interesting thing that you don't realize that a small dose of honey is nice and a spoonful but if you take a large dose it's really bitter and the same thing happens with grief grief is just the explosion of love within you that comes out but there's so much of it it's painful same stuff but in big quantities it's painful and and in that in that pain experience is the love believe it or not um that you can experience and anyway that was the that was the thing i just didn't understand why i was standing there saying I can sleep in this room. I'm not having nightmares. It's not bothering me. What the hell is happening? But I feel connected to something that's supporting me. And it felt real. It was so real. And then I fell in love with it. Mm. That was the next thing. Mm. Uh, I thought the pain that I was experiencing was I didn't have somebody to love. That was the, the source of the pain. Not so much that she wasn't there loving me, but rather I didn't have something to love. And so I thought, well, I better find something. So, um, mm -hmm. you know, like John of the Cross and Solomon's Song of Songs and all that stuff, they fall in love with the divine, which you do, mm. and you love it. Mm. And it feels real. Or you can fall in love with yourself. And I guess, yes, that, well, that's what the process really is. Mm. You're really surrendering to yourself mm. in the guise of projecting that outside yourself as an image of divinity. Mm. That, that's what I think is happening. So you said when I saw you the other night that you went on this intense search for meaning and you looked in every corner of the world. Where did you go, Ian? Where did, where did you look? The search, I suppose, started off with just looking for what was God. And, you know, you wander into bookshops and you find any book that's got the title God on it and you buy it <laughs> and you read it. Uh, you go and ask, you know, supposedly wise ministers or other people what they think. I learned to meditate, and this guy was seen pretty wise, and he was giving me the whole Hindu-Buddhist philosophy about life. So that was a huge sort of uh, Eastern view of life and meaning and um, uh, what was happening with me. 
So uh, that led me into numerous books on meditation, which led me into psychology stuff. I'm a large sort of reader. I collect books and read things. don't read every page, but I flick through books and find what I'm looking for and then read that. And so, you know, I, I went into the whole stuff about death and dying, you know, the Tibetan book of living and dying and, and uh, all sorts of any title that had death and dying on it, I would buy it and read it. So I'd read it. I didn't travel overseas to some sort of foreign ashram or, or, or anything like that. But I just went asking people, and if I heard there was some minister who was considered pretty wise, I'd just go and have a chat with him and say, what do you think about life, God? How does it work? And that was, that was sort of the search. You, at some point, you, you discover numerology, and you find sort of you know, weird things in that. I, I could, for example, there's something in numerology, you know, you add up the dates of your birth or something rather than gives a number. Right, and the, num- the numbers are one to nine, and they represent lifetimes. And nine is the last lifetime, supposedly. So Marguerite's birthday added up to 27, which contained, became nine. My birthday added up to 27, which became nine. And then nine added together became 18, which became nine again. Mm. So the numerology people said, this is your last lifetime here. This is what it's all about. You've come back here to wake yourself up, and this is it. <laughs> that was the numerology sort of thing. But let me ask you, what did you think of that? Did you take well, it, it on? It sort of made sense. It made sense. So you said, okay, I can cope with that. I can cope with that. That sort of made sense. Yes, that's really interesting. And then, mm. you'd, then, I'd, then you'd go into astrology or something or other and look up. You know, I was a Taurus, um, and she was um, a Libran. And according to the, you know, some of the astrology stuff, we, she was an air sign. And um, uh, and I was a heavy grounded earth, so I sort of it was a good mixture. You know, she she said before the night before she died, she did, in the discussion about somebody else's problems in the newspaper, she just casually said, "Look, our life is, is, is our life is too perfect." That was a comment, and I said, "Well, we work pretty hard at that." Now I was a Taurus, I'm a Taurus, and Taurus loves everything to be stable. Still, he hates change. He literally hates change. Mm-hmm. He, the bull just likes to stand in the, in, in the paddock and have everything just the way it is around him. <laughs> and he's quite content with that. That's why he doesn't want to move or, or is deemed to be obstinate. Anyway, so I'm the Taurus and I've got this castle here and it's all nice and secure and everything's you know, really comfortable. She's a Libran. Librans balance things. So she kept everything still from her point of view. So there was no disruption. So I'm keeping it still and she's keeping it still and it's perfectly still. And then there was huge... And then there's this explosion. Explosion. One astrology thing says that this is exactly what happens to the Taurus. Uh, You know, the Taurus star sign creates this perfect environment for themselves, but they don't like change, and there's no growth without change. So therefore, something has to have to come in and explode it. And so that was the event that exploded. And again, I'm going to ask you, what did you make of all that you oh, said? It made sense. It makes sense to me? It, it made sense to me. I thought, <laughs> oh, okay, you know, well, that really makes sense, yes. Yeah. We were leading my life, but this is what's happening, you know, and here's this, you know, the picture in the book showing this, this, this event sort of occurring. And so, you know, you went into a bit of this and a bit of that. And, and, and so there were little glimmers of information that would come out of this, I would call this world more spiritualism. Than, that's not, this, must, this is not spirituality, it's really spiritualism. But it, it's a non-rational uh, sort of view of the world. It's looking at the world in a more uh, spiritual way. Pers- perspective. Um, I call it broader perspective. Uh, bro- well, that's right. I'm saying it's, not, it's the non-rational. You're adding a sort of an, another dimension to the thinking. I mean, I'm down at Terrigal on a holiday and, and I go in there and you're walking down a corridor and there's 
some you know tarot woman reading cards and you think oh well you go in there and you pull out the card and the first card you pull out is the hangman she says something drastic happened to you in your life and are you leading your life now upside down from where it was because you know the guy's upside down that's yeah. what it symbolizes and i said yes my whole life is, was before i was on the ground and now it's in heaven yes you know? i love that before but, i was on the ground now i'm in heaven i'm i'm in heaven on earth yeah that's right but that's what the you know the card symbolizes you know your whole reality is turned upside down mm-hmm. and this is what happened with it. everything changed dramatically yeah. and and then then i sort of was aware that i was actually sort of like witnessing it but i found going back into my past that i was always like this i was always extremely self-referral I used to stand back inside myself and watch what was happening. Yes, and donning the witness. Being being the witness. Yeah. Um, you know, when I first made love to Marguerite in the middle of it all, 21 years of age, I said, stop what we're doing. I, what's actually happening here? I want to experience this and be aware of it. Mm. Can you imagine that? <laughs> How did she feel about that? Oh, just get on with it, will you? That's right. But that was a sort of, the, that's, so, so I think I'm a very sort of self-referral sort of person. Um, and, and I've always felt confident in myself to cope with things. And this was the point in the bedroom that that was the first time in my life I truly admitted to myself that I was beaten. Yes. I really knew in my heart I'm that beaten. I was beaten. Mm. And I was admitting that to something I had to admit that I was beaten in order to get the help. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so, so my search went, you know, into, into all these different things. I, as I said, um, you know, I would go to lectures on meditation or I'd go to somebody doing a course on psychology or something here or there and pick up little bits of things and meet strange things. And the most interesting part about the whole thing was that whatever information I seemed to need just keeps, kept appearing. It got you further and further down the rabbit hole, as they say. In yeah. The, uh, what, uh, the, other, the other extraordinary thing was that there was this unbelievably infinite support around that seemed to just, you just would walk into a shop and somebody seemed to have what you wanted or something, you know, which I'd never really noticed before. Synchro destiny. Yeah, and uh, yeah, that, that's right, and, door, and doors would open. But mm. yeah, the whole process changed a whole lot of, uh, you know, thing. it changed my whole philosophy of orthodontics. I changed my practice site, uh, my partner moved out, and, and, and it was like I was, you know, right back on my own two feet, as it were, and everything. but everything was supporting me. The only thing that was missing was Marguerite, but that wasn't the, uh, the whole of my life, I think. Yeah. Know, my, my life really consisted of a whole package. That was my concept of marriage. Marriage yeah. was my wife the children, the house, the practice, the family, the whole package. Yeah. And I think what happened in her death, I lost part of it, but not all of it. Mm. I still had the rest of it to go on with. And how did the children cope? Did they come with you on this journey? Yeah, they, they were remarkable. This, this was the other, the other amazing thing. And I only thought of this after the movie the other night, but when I told the, the children that, that their mother was dead and, I, and they're sitting in the house next door and I just walk in and I say, well, look, this is terrible, I have to tell you this. This is the worst thing I can say ever to you in your life. Your mother's dead. They just sort of let out a scream and then there's silence. And then Skye, the middle one, she was 12. She says something that's really weird. She said she had to die sometime. Yeah. Which was an extraordinary thing to say. Mm. She had to die sometime. Why would a 12-year-old say that? Mm, The wisdom of children. Unless she sort of knew at the back of her mind that it was going to happen somewhere and that, okay, now it's happened. And then then they just sat there. 
And then they went back to school the next day. We discussed that. Was there any point in being around here? No. Police are in the way. There's nowhere to go. You'll feel worse here than at school. And the longer you leave it, the worse it'll get going back. So we'll go back. And they said, right. And they went back. I think what they were doing as well, they were trying to replace Marguerite and as of their way of giving me support. And we had a discussion that it was a team event. We couldn't survive this event individually and we couldn't survive it if anybody in the team let anybody else in the team down because that would create conflict and problems and the only way we could survive was if everybody worked at surviving and the place running, as it were. Keep keeping together. So it brought you closer as but, a, yeah, fu- as a right, family. We had a discussion in the bedroom, you know. Mm-hmm. And, uh, now, you know, I said, you'll get upset, but if you upset your sister then she's going to get upset, then I'm going to get upset, and then we're all going to be upset. Does everybody understand this? Yes. <laughs> Sounds like... Uh, it's like running the army. I general think. in the army. Yeah, you know, but it was, right, kids, no getting upset, all right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. And, but they went... I, I think because I was appearing to be remarkably calm about the thing and not hysterical, mm. that they were taken along with it too. Yeah, and I, and then I I sent them off to learn to meditate because I felt it was doing me good. Mm. So they were, so we used to meditate as a family and so on. You know they they just saw dad hitting off in some other direction which wasn't wrecking their life and was holding their life together and and their life was holding together. And that was basically our plan. Our plan was we had to keep doing what we were doing as if nothing had happened and fill in the holes when they appeared. That was really the simplistic plan we tried to follow. And how did you come about making the documentary? How did Ben Matthews get a hold of you? Well, that's a sort of a long, synchronistic type of convoluted story, and you'd have to say then at the end that it, it, it wasn't by chance. How did it come about? Oh, probably 15 years before that, I'm sitting with the meditating teacher, Tom Knowles, and he says, your life would make a good movie. How would we put this together? Now, I, I said, well, yes, you know, hmm. Oh, well, so, anyway, so, so for weeks we discussed what the movie would be like and it was to be a spiritual sort of uh, expose, something that had some spirituality, otherworldliness message in it. Shortly after doing that, Geraldine Doog turned up from Compass and they came and made a documentary for their Compass program for 10 minutes, came back, went to 40 minutes and then they presented it on Good Friday called the Resurrection Special. It was very sort of um, materialistic, very rational and, and not very otherworldly. So we thought, ah, this is the universe being created by us. We've thought up this movie. This guy's turned, these people have turned up, made the movie. That's the movie. But that actually wasn't the context of the way we thought it up. Okay, so years later, Ben Matthews is the son of this guy that one of my, one of my godmothers marries, a, a lovely woman, brilliant woman grief counsellor, highly spiritual name, Kathy Matthews. And th- this guy, Ben Matthews, is the son of the guy she marries. And so he's doing film work at, you know, to become a film producer, and they had to do a uh, documentary. And he didn't know what to do, and it had to be real for 10 minutes. So he, his mother-in-law says, well, look, why don't you go and ask Ian, you know? And Ben was a meditator, and he's a very, very spiritual guy, a bit like Spielberg, I think. Sees things in a different way. Mm. Anyway, so he came up and we had long chats. And I said, yeah, okay, well, what, we, what have I got to do? And he said, well, we'll just follow you around, you know, and talk to you, which is sort of what he did. Mm. And he, he, he ends up making the movie What You See, 
which I actually created because at the beginning I'm, I'm standing talking to him in a room about how I would make the movie if, if I was making it. I know, and he kept that in. I and, love and, that. He, and he films that. Yeah. And he keeps it in. Yeah, he does. Right, yeah. and he keeps it in. And he, and he puts it together. Uh, and I didn't know how he was going to put it together. There was no sort of script writing or what, we, you know. He, he just, they would just appear on different days. If I was chipping in the garden with the golf clubs, they'd turn up and just say, well, here's the prize. You know, what are you doing? Ask me a few questions, film something, and disappear again. Yeah. He goes back to the film school and they say, this is brilliant. But 10 minutes is too short. We'll give you extra funding. You can go back and make a 40-minute documentary. Right. So he came back, made it. He won the first prize, won the award with it, and so on. Let me ask you, how long ago was that? It was, I think it was made two years ago. Right, uh, okay. There's still some things we want to do with it, you know, to, yeah. to finish it off properly. And it seems to be appearing in different places. And how can people get a hold of it if they want to see it? I think it's on his website. You can look up Chrysalis in Google and you'll find it there. I don't know whether you can download it and play it or whether you can just play it. I think you can just play it there. I'm not sure. Some sort of psychologist wanted it. They thought it was good. And that was it. I didn't get anything out of it financially. But from my point of view, why do it? The reason I did it was because it provides a mirror for me about me and it's a record for my family in the future. Mm, mm. And how often have the girls seen the movie? Oh, probably half a dozen times. Half a dozen times. And they don't sit down and watch it. For... No, but what was their reaction when they first saw um, it? They all thought it was very good. They thought it was a good uh, resume. of. It was the enemy that I think he was trying to show, whereas Compass had just the outer story. Uh, they yeah. didn't really have much to do with the spirituality. It was what was really happening on a day-by-day basis in right, our life. Yeah. And this was more the, um, the transformation. transformation or something that had, that had occurred. Of the inner you, yeah. 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 More, more, on the, more on my inside perspective. Mm. And I thought, well, that, was, that would be interesting to see how somebody from the outside world sees that. A lot of people ask me this question, and I've got my own views, but I'm going to pose this question to you because you've lived it. And the question is, why do bad things happen to good people? Well, that's only our definition of bad. Uh, I mean, uh, yeah. Joseph Campbell answers it this way. It's the world of duality. You can't have good without bad, otherwise you don't know what good is. Mm. You can't know heat unless you've known cold. Cold, exactly. Yeah. Mm. So you can't, you can't have one without the other. So you have to, it, it, it's there. The other point is it's not God creating it. You know, I hate the word God because it's so tied in with the religious view of of something which is totally insane, absolutely insane. <laughs> insane. All the religions have an insane view of, of the word God. Insane. Don't hold back, Ian. <laughs> no, no. I, I really go for this because it is frankly stupid. I, I, I just don't understand. I don't mean that a God, if you use the word God to describe some sort of creative force in the universe that's you know, initiated everything, then that's my sort of view of it, and I call that love. But to associate that with a theology, which is man-made, and to worship a God of unbelievable creativity and then say that this God had to speak to some illiterate peasant through an angel to get his message onto earth, you know, you'd say, why would a God of that intelligence do that? It's just, it's just stupid. To make up a story like this and the Christian myth, that's equally stupid. Yeah. So I have more of the Buddhist view, you know, that... God is this force of consciousness, and it's divine, and it's running through you, running through the universe, the unified field, or whatever you want to call it, uh, and that's it. But I don't see it in a personified way that it's this person who's laid down all these laws. So I don't think that 
God per se is creating things to happen. They're just things that just happen. To answer your question, then, well, why do bad things happen to good people? I think that's the title of a book or something. It's just our definition of what's happening is bad. And whatever happens is bad can always be turned into something good. Yes, well, one of my favourite teachers, I've got a few of them, a wonderful woman called Byron Katie who has the work. She says, nothing happens to us, it happens for us. Everything that happens, happens for us. Well, that's the opportunity for good. Now, what does she mean by that? And and that's the sort of thing I look at that line and say, what on earth is that person saying? And (laughs) and, and so, so what is the greatest good that can happen to us? What is the greatest good, Ian? What is the greatest good that can well, happen? Well, I, th- I think what it is, the greatest good that can happen to us is a process of acceptance with what is. Now, you don't have to accept anything if it's nice because it's nice, right? So it's not really a test. Mm. You only have to accept something that's difficult, which is painful, which isn't nice, which is the test. Mm. And, that, and that process is the growth. If you can accept what's happening even though you don't like it. And it doesn't mean you agree that it's, it's the right thing that should have happened. But in other words, the guy kills Marguerite. I don't agree that's the right thing to do, but that's not the point. The point is, how do you react to that? If you can accept that, okay, that was his karma. My karma is trying to do something good with it. And then the bad becomes good. And frankly, to answer your question, I would ask that question. You know, you can answer that question another way. Knowing what you know now, would you go through that again? Mm. Would you do that experience again? Yeah. Well, of course, if you did it again, you wouldn't know what was going to happen. So, you know, the answer would be yes. Something good did come out of her death. And I learned a lot of things about myself and about what I think reality is and particularly about what love is. And I needed that wake up experience. So her death was a sacrifice in love for me so that we would all have this experience. That's my sort of view of it. But who was sacrificing what? Well... She was sacrificing her life to give us the, you'll give, you know, me and the, the kids, I suppose, and anybody else around us who became involved in it, you know, a wake up. But then you could come to that from a different perspective. And when you tune in to broader perspective, you know that there is no sacrifice because life does not cease after you cease to live in this physical body. Mm. And so there is no sacrifice when someone dies. There is only a transformation yeah, from that's... one experience to the next. Yes, but the game, the, the, you know the, uh, the movie with that actor Cage in it or something or other, and he plays an angel. Oh, yeah, uh, City of Angels. City, City of Angels. With Nicholas Cage. And in trench coats. Yes. You know, sitting on, sitting on window ledges and somebody has a car accident and then, then they're there to sort of guide them away into yeah. some other region. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. And they're all standing around, but they're bored. <laughs> and some of them managed to drop into the earth plane. So there's some process you could do this and become not angels, but become real people. And one guy says to the other, well, why do this? And, and he says, to feel one kiss is worth an eternity in bliss. Mm. So the game, the point of it here on earth in the body is to feel something. I don't, you can't feel that, I think, when you're out of the body in the same sort of way. There's no sensory feelings. So it's boredom that drives you to incarnate. So, you do, so this is meant to be the perfect life. Heaven on earth is down here, yeah. not up there. I don't know if it's boredom, but it's definitely a sense of adventure. I mean, why do people challenge themselves? Why do crazy people climb mountains where they know their life is going to be? To test themselves. In, yeah, well, to challenge themselves. Yeah, and how much, I mean, my sort of uh, line on that is, you know, what's life about? It's to test how much spirit we have. <laughs> 
You know, I saw on Oprah one time there was this man who was in a plane accident and he was a businessman, hadn't ever thought about anything like this. And what happened was he he turned around and he saw all these bodies burning as the plane had crashed. He managed to get out, obviously, to go on Oprah. But what he noticed was that there were these lights leaving the body and some of them were very dim and some of them were very light and he didn't know what he was experiencing he didn't know what he was seeing but like you having gone through this traumatic experience he had questions shooting out of him burning within him and he needed answers to those questions so he went on an intense search for meaning but what he said to Oprah was the light was how much life you live how much you allow your light to shine in this lifetime and he was watching it leave these bodies burning and he said I want to be one of those bright lights when I finish this lifetime I want my light to burn brightly and I don't want it to be a dim light it was just a fabulous analogy of how well, to live well, that, your life. well I think I think that's right but unfortunately yeah. the process to get that to ignite the light yep. there's no test for the light unless there's some test <laughs> say that one again there's no test of the light that's within unless you have the test unless you experience something that tests the light that's within. I don't know about that. I think that there are plenty of bright lights out there and they haven't been tested. They've just come in with an intention to burn brightly. Often they burn brightly and they leave quickly and some of them burn brightly for a long time. So Yes, there would be, but, you know, if they go quickly, you know, at some point I sort of just feel that you, you really don't know what you're doing unless you're actually sort of coming up against something that's testing what you're capable of Mm. Um, and that's what the growth is Mm. uh, the surrender to accept what is and well i believe in that we all create our own reality even when it seems inconceivable that we could ever create something like you went through well well we well i know this sounds bizarre Mm. or not crazy Mm. but the girls would say we we would discuss all this Mm. and that and lots of times when was going when things were out of control We'd stop and we'd say, hang on, you know, we're falling in the hole here. Everybody, you know, pull yourself together. Uh, you know, this is really hard. This is really difficult. And then one of the girls would say, well, we created this for ourselves. This is our lifetime. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, it might have been something trivial about who was going to the birthday party or whatever it was. Yeah. And everybody was getting emotional and, and so on. But that was sort of the view we took. We created this to experience this. Yes, and I call people who experience a lot of drama and trauma in their lives adventurous souls because it is that trauma and that drama that gives you the challenge, that gives you the adventure. And so not a drama queen, but an adventurous soul. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I mean, people, that I, I agree. I look at what's happening to other people's lives, which I didn't pay much attention to before. Interesting. And I see people in wheelchairs and I think what great courage, you know, these people are going on. And what great examples they're setting the world. You know, you don't have the right to complain about your life if you've got a sore toe and somebody else is in a wheelchair. A particular point of suffering that I just can't comprehend where this person is at the moment is that poor girl who got burned in the marathon run where, you know, they went through a bushfire in West Australia. She's running around wearing a total mask and she was about 23 or 24 and stunningly beautiful. I mean, really beautiful girl being orthodontically that is of and and as well she looked very nice and now she's got this disfigured face and her whole body is burnt now what is going on inside her 
Well, I don't think that any of us can ever know what's going on inside the life or the head of another, but we do have access to our own. And I think that when we get in touch with the inward meaning of our own lives and we shine our light brightly, then we can contribute to all those other people who are looking for that also. I think that often we sit around far too often contemplating what's going on in the life of others. It's called... It's called gossip, I suppose, and we cannot really do anything about it. All we can really do is shine our own light and, as you say, look at life from a broader perspective and see the gift in everything and allow that light to shine so that it can show the way for others. That's Well, I I just sort of meant that as a testimony example of, you know, how difficult life is. And and really most of us don't really have much ground for saying life is all that difficult. So these things, are, I think, are inspirations. They're, they're, they're the light shining out. That's what I see in it. But it seems that you need some sort of event to ignite it. Somewhere in your life, there's something happening. So in, the expression, why do the good die young? That's really interesting, isn't it? Why do the good die young? Because yeah. there's um, no such thing as death. Ian, let me ask you, who was Ian Edwards before the incident and who is Ian Edwards today after this intense search for meaning? I think I was sort of living my life much the same sort of way that I am now, except I didn't understand how I was doing it that way. <laughs> and that, does that make sense? I would be much more uh, surrendered now to what is, to what's going on, compared to the way I was before, more tolerant of different things, more gentle about them. Um, not that I was aggressive before. Still an insider. I don't know whether that makes any sense than, than I was before but more aware in particular of, of actually what love is in a relationship between two people. We were living it, but I didn't understand, you know, um, what it was we were doing there. Now I do understand, I think, what that process is. Um, do you think understanding it helps you live it? I mean, there are people, there are, I know a lot of people who understand a lot of this stuff, but they don't necessarily live it. Well, well it's, it's, it's easier to live it. It's more instinctive to live it. When you understand it. Yes, but also... Understanding is a theoretical understanding if you go through some experience which actually forces you to surrender to something, then you start to live it more. Mm. Uh, you're more self, I suppose you're more self-sacrificing and aware that you're doing that. Mm. Whereas before you might have been doing it but weren't quite aware what it was you were doing or you weren't doing it enough. Mm. So would you say that you're a more joyful person today than you were 30 no, years I, ago? I was, I, I was supremely happy up to Marguerite's death, yes. you know, because I had everything. Yep. Um, happiness is not really any of that. Happiness, I think, is a state of peace and calm within you. And so, you know, I would say there are things that, that I miss. I don't know whether, I'm, whether the word is unhappy about not having them because I thought, to give the example... After Marguerite's death, I thought, oh, okay, right, well, why am I in this pain? I was trying to work out where all this pain was coming from, how you got out of it. How did you get through this grief process? I even set myself sort of like a three-month grieving program, uh, doing all those things that you don't want to do that will confront you, that will create pain, you'll get through it, and then the grief's over, you can start your life again. Can you believe that? Three months, you know, ten years later, you were still grieving different things. But the, the thing, what were we saying now? I just lost, got off the track. <laughs> <laughs> about, about, about the grieving? I said, do you think that you're, you're more joyful in living? Than oh, okay, yes, <laughs> okay, okay. So in, in this search for the cause for pain and how do I get out of the pain, I sort of thought very simplistically, 
oh, well, you know, you, you just don't have a relationship. So that's why you're in pain. You had a relationship before. Now you don't have a relationship with somebody you're in love with. So that's the cause of the pain, you know, something's missing. So therefore, well, if you can have a relationship and fall in love again, the pain will go away and you're back to square one. So I sort of stuck this out the front. Right, okay, I'll be happy, back to square one, if I can fall in love with some other person. And I was supremely optimistic that this would happen. I believe the universe would support me. I hadn't done anything wrong. And I was supporting it, so therefore it would fill in this gap for me. And I just sort of have another relationship but. And that was it. But I began to realize that what I was doing was putting something outside myself as the source of my happiness. Yes. Whatever I thought happiness was. Yes. Which was the relationship. Mm. And that wasn't how I started my relationship with Marguerite. So after a while, I had to give that away, Mm. which was like a carrot. It sort of kept me going around the corner. I'll meet somebody and fall in love and everything will be rosy again. That's what I thought. And so then I began to look at what happiness really was. And it's a feeling within you, not, not generated by something that's outside you. Absolutely. So then I sort of changed from that and said, okay, well, it'll turn up if it turns up. I'm optimistic, I'm ready or something or other. And let me ask you, has it turned up? No, it hasn't. I've met numerous lovely women and had many short relationships, not much longer than six months, I suppose. Why were they short, Ian? Because I sort of ran out. I didn't know what I was doing with them, where I was meant to be going with it. Uh, and And the explanation there, I think, was that I had this concept in my mind that my relationship with Marguerite was the whole package, as I said. Yes. It was the marriage. It was the family. It was the the whole thing. And I couldn't see where somebody new turned up into this because I already had the house. I had the the car. I had the, the children. I had the practice. I didn't know what I was doing with this person in the future. I didn't want any more children. And I didn't want to ma- get mixed up with a, somebody with a lot of children as well. That would be too complex. So... I would meet somebody and and I'd go along and then I just didn't sort of fall in love with them. I just didn't. I just didn't. And then I'd say, look, I'm not falling in love with you, so I should stop, you know, seeing you. And um, how did they take it? <laughs> um, well, it was always upsetting for them. <laughs> Sorry, I'm getting personal. <laughs> no, no, what? You know, and but I said, look, I'm going along here and it, it just somehow I'm not falling in love with you and I can't, I don't know what, what I'm doing next, Do you, you know. You can't just come in here and replace Marguerite. Uh, what do we do? I, you know, the image of what I was trying to do in the relationship with this person um, didn't fit in with the complexities of the package of the life that I was, you know, involved with at the time, which was bringing up the children mm-hmm. and dealing with homicide, which was unresolved for about five or six years, and all that sort of aftermath that was going around the problem. It was too complex, I thought. There's something else I wanted to ask you because I think probably the hardest thing that you had to deal with apart from the loss of your wife was the innuendo around a murder and living with people's tongues wagging, talking about did he do it, did he do it. How did you cope with that? I know you said you just coped because you had this coping mechanism. Now, it's an interesting uh, thing. First of all, if you haven't done something, you don't sort of think that, you know, you know you haven't done it. Yeah. So I don't know really how much we thought about that. It was there all the time mm. um, if you thought about it, but we were trying not to think about that right. and trying to carry on as if nothing had happened. Uh, we we're just trying to do the normal thing in our life, go to work, go to school, do this, do that, you know, play sport, whatever it was. We were just trying to do 
what we'd been doing before. We weren't making excuses and backing off. Right. And that was just then a full-time thing to do that. And everybody was so involved in trying to do that that there wasn't much time to think too much about it. And, and I suppose some people did think of it, and I did say to the police at one point, can't you put some sort of announcement in the paper that my alibi is perfect, you're now cleared of any implications? And he said, no, we can't put that in the paper because nobody's cleared of any implications until we found the culprit. Right, okay. Right. So, see, so that's just a technicality. You can't say something because you're legally not allowed to sort of say But I guess, Ian, that it forces you to let go of what you think other people think of you. It, and it that did. is free. That was exactly it. Yeah. I, I didn't really go anywhere because I knew I was innocent. I didn't go in there thinking, uh, people thinking that I'm guilty. I never really thought of that. Mm. I always thought that I'm innocent, but I never went out really thinking the public's looking at me mm. and thinking you did this. Right. Um, think, we didn't think that too much. Although, yeah. uh, you know, it was happening, no doubt, as people tried to work out the scenario. And, you know, 99 times out of the cases in the 100 for, for murder, it's the person closest to the victim. So I didn't think of it particularly much, you know. I, I wasn't I wasn't thinking that, but yeah. it was around a bit. You just have you to just let go. Because I think the thing that tortures people the most is that thought, what do you think of me? And do yeah. you like me? And do you think I'm okay? And, and when you let go of all that, oh, God, freedom. Well, well I, was, I was letting go of that because that was a negative thought. Yeah. That was, that was negativity. And I was just trying to look after the children. And yes. so it, it lasted about four years and probably... The hardest part was when the police, at about the three-year mark, came to me with some information, and they said, we've worked out who this person is. He's in jail, actually. And they then said, this will take about a year before we can get any further, and you can't tell anybody, even the children, that we've got the culprit. Right. Uh, in case it gets into the media, and that will blow our cover, what we're doing, mm. to prove what we need to prove. Mm. So then for 12 months or so, I wandered around and I couldn't say anything, even to the kids. I wasn't going to tell them right. um, in case they splurted it out somewhere and then it broke the police, the police's cover and the investigation they were doing. What's really interesting, Ian, is that when I talk to people after I saw the documentary Chrysalis and I talk to people about your case, because I don't remember it. I don't remember it, even though I lived in the eastern suburbs and it was happening next door. I don't remember it in the news. I wasn't tuned into it. The first time I heard about it was the other night when I saw the documentary. But as I've talked to people, they do remember it, as I said to you before. Well, it made, it, it made quite an impact. It made an impact. But what's really interesting is people get so stuck on the story of the murder that they don't see the transformation of the man and that's really what I wanted to bring to radio today is that uh, things happen for us not to us and there's always a transformation available if you will allow it. Yes I think that well that's the, the karmic point as I would call it you know that you know this is over in life is a difficult thing that a difficulty turns up and you have a choice which way do you go with it you know yeah. do you try and turn it into something good or do you, you know, sit there in the bad state of it? How I did this, or what made me do this, I don't know, because I wasn't religious. But there was this sense after that bedroom thing, something happened in the bedroom. Yeah. And after that, I felt so connected with something. Yeah. And so, the word was empowered. Empowered. To, to cope. And 
I was just like knocked off my feet. I felt like I was plugged into a transformer. <laughs> uh, and, and that sent me off on, on this other journey. But, but the point was I still felt I could cope. Mm. And lots of times I didn't cope. Lots of times I fell down on the floor in tears and all mm. that sort of thing. I wasn't coping then. Couldn't stand the pain and the, the agony of the aloneness and all that sort of stuff. And then you would feel better again and then you feel you could cope again. Mm. And off you go. And mm. I was also optimistic that, you know, that I could get through it. I was confident. Yeah. The other thing that is interesting is that I had all the skills and the information, I thought, in order to survive the event. And I first, besides this spiritual connection, which was sort of plugging me in and not keeping me elevated rather than depressed, mm. what I did was go back into all my uh, rugby sports psychology because I'd coached rugby for about a decade mm -hmm. very well mm -hmm. and very successfully. Mm -hmm. And a large part of the coaching had been sports psychology with the players. And I went back to the basic principles of sports psychology that I taught the players. I got all the books out, reread all the books, started to re-motivate myself, read books about people climbing up mountains, you know, wrote signs all over the wall, put whiteboards up all around the house, never give in, don't fail, keep going, just make tomorrow, we're all going well, you know, what's the goal next week? All that sort of stuff that I used to do with the football team, I, I converted back into myself. Right. And the, the interesting thing is it, what you try and teach the player in the contest is how to handle what they're, what they're thinking in the game. And, that, and that's really interesting. The first thing you teach them is they have to ignore the score. Right. Because if they're ahead, they get confident, and if they're behind, they get depressed. Right. So you say, at any point, you must ignore the score. Just because you've scored a try, don't go out and think, that's it, you've got the game one up, right? Forget it. You just have to keep playing the game. Keep doing what you were doing and ignore the score, and don't look to the end. There is no end. Don't keep thinking, you know, teams lose lots of points at half time and they lose lots of points at the end of the game because they're looking for the, the break. Mm. It's going to stop. You know, mm. they're playing to a, a time. So you've got to ignore a time and just keep playing. There is no end. Yeah. The second thing is when the opposition score against you or you score, you have to discuss what you're going to do next. So in a team sense, they've scored. So you don't sit and say that it's five points or blame somebody. There's no blame. Yeah. You don't blame somebody for missing a tackle or anything like that. So you refocus immediately on what you have to do next. Right. So you ignore the score, you refocus on what you have to do next, and you have to ignore the, the environment. Okay. Um, now, the, because that psychologically that affects players. So you, you don't say, I don't like this ground, or I like this ground. You're just out there playing within the lines. You don't say, I dislike this referee or, or his decisions, because that affects how you play. So you're not allowed to say, I like the crowd or I don't like the crowd or there's nobody there to cheer for me or anything like that. Right. You have to ignore the environment and get your mind focused back inside the arena in which you're playing in. So I took all these principles, you know, and applied them back to myself. Yeah. And I saw it as, you know, we're behind the trial line, the opposition just scored, so what would you do? Well, you just have to ignore the score. This event's happened, but you can't think about it because that's going to affect you. Number two is think about what you're going to do next, right? Uh, you have to play as a team. That was the teamwork thing. Um, you have to ignore the environment you're in. You can't walk around the house and say this event happened inside the house or whatever. It's just your house. And the other point you, that the player has to do is 
have built up within themselves the motivation to endure the contest. That has to be really internal stuff, not external. External is like you get money if you play the game. Um, you're doing it for other reasons, and uh, which will last longer than the money. So I had to go back. I went back and said, right, well, what are all these principles of re-motivation? And I'd used music to motivate the teams. I used to play music to them. Yeah. I used to play them Handel's Messiah because I thought that was uplifting and joyful. I used to play rocking and different other things. So I got all the music out that I had been playing to the football teams and started to play that to re-motivate myself. Yeah. It, there was a plan there in mind that I was following. It wasn't just ad hoc. So you would say, Ian, that spiritual guidance for life, learn football. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's right, yes. You know, well, the sports contest is life. Yeah. You have yeah. to follow rules that you don't like. And to do it well, you learn the principles of, of living because it's about a contest when things aren't always going well. Uh, so I, that, that was the plan. I had this. I came straight back and said, right, I saw the whole thing in terms of the, a contest against me, although I didn't really know. It was interesting. You know, the girl said, when do we win? When's the win point yeah. with, with what we're doing here? Yeah. And I said, I don't know. Um, we just have to keep on going. Isn't the winning the feeling good? Isn't everything you want in life you want because you think in the having of it you'll feel better or you'll feel good? So when you're feeling good, then you've won. It, um, then you've won. Well, that's what is the happiness. Is, this, is it having something? It, it's not. I think, the, I think the happiness in winning is a relief that it's over. Yeah. Um, winning grand finals is a really anticlimactic sort of experience. Yeah. You think you're going to feel euphoric and you actually just feel, you know... Exhausted. Exhausted. <laughs> and, and it's a better feeling, infinitely better than losing. Yeah. Right? The losing feeling is so bad. But the winning feeling is, you, don't, you know, when you win something, you don't run around and fly off to the moon. Mm. It's actually a, a very anticlimactic, feel good, but I think it's a calmness. Thank goodness that's over, a relief, really. Yeah. Um, the winning feeling is enjoying the journey. What do they say? Life is not a destination. Yeah, it's, it's a journey. the journey that, that you're making is the winning it's, thing. It's enjoying the journey yeah. that's the willing, uh, willing So, feeling. So I used all that football psychology as a way of forming a plan and applying it exactly in the same way. So, you know, we, we all were moved back and Marguerite was killed in the bedroom. And I said, this is my bedroom. This is where I live. Oh, my God, you know, how can this happen? This was a room of love and here's this, you know, negativity. We have to get... And so we're going back in here. We're not walking away from this. I'm not going to live in the three quarters of the house and lock up this room. So we all moved back into the bedroom. Mm. And it didn't make any difference. Mm. Didn't have any nightmares. Didn't have anything. Mm. Mm. Doesn't feel negative. It's still there. Let me ask you, Ian, are you still practising as an orthodontist? No, no, I retired about four years ago. Four years ago. And what's in the future for Dr Ian Edwards? I think my role is the patriarch of the family because um, the girls have married people who don't have too many parents around. Mm -hmm. So there's not many other grandparents there. I've got three girls and two of them are married and there's four grandchildren. So I spend a lot of time with their lives. They don't have mothers, so they spend a lot of time talking to me. Watching the grandchildren grow up, which I think is absolutely fantastic. I just love that. Love playing with the kids. And I love children. That's why as an orthodontist, I like dealing with children. Mm -hmm. Fun. And I don't know what it is. Um, I've stopped sort of thinking it has to be something. Uh, whatever turns up, turns up. Okay, so look, look what's happening now. Ben makes a movie, then two years later, somebody turns up and shows it, then somebody turns up and does an interview. 
you know, <laughs> this happening, I'm just going along with. I'm not really looking for anything. You're going with the flow, darling. You're going yeah, with the flow. Yeah, that's it. You know, um, I'm pursuing a golf swing. Um, pursuing a golf swing. <laughs> yeah, I'm, you know, I've taken up golf as I'm learning that driving the golf coach is nuts. Um, but having a lot of fun doing that. Yeah. Um, you know, and I've got a house to look after, grandchildren around, all those sorts of things. I think I'm pretty content, actually. I don't have a relationship with anybody specifically. I don't think I need that. If it turns up, it's a bonus. So we should put a call out to all the ladies listening. Yeah, I'm still... Yeah, um, <laughs> He's available, girls. Yeah, he, he, I mean, I don't know whether they'd want to come. I'm 70. <laughs> what did you say? You're 70? 69, you know. 69. But the only advantage is I would say to them, I've been meditating for 20 years, so I should be 10 years younger. <laughs> What do they say? 60s, the new 40. Yeah, that's right. You know, whatever it is. Uh, The other point is, what else can you do? You could sit at home and and say, life's miserable, or you just go out and enjoy it. So I just sort of go out and do what I'm doing. You know, I I enjoyed doing things well. So if I wash the car, I'll polish it, you know. So that takes longer. And that's sort of the basic attitude to my life. Yeah. Uh, well, thanks so much for talking with us on Accentuate, the positive radio. Okay. It's uh, been wonderful. Well, I think if, if your thing is Accentuate, the positive, I would say that my experience in life is no matter what happens, you have to find the good in it. Yeah, you have to accentuate the positive. That's right. You have to find <laughs> the good. And if you're looking for the bad, you're the victim. Yeah, if you're looking for the bad, you'll find it. You'll find, definitely you'll find it, but you're the victim of it. Yeah. And if you're looking for the good... You'll find it. ...or the positive in it, mm. what's positive, it may be inside, maybe it's definitely not material. That's the journey, I think. Yeah. So um, what's your title, Accentuate the Positive? That's it. Well, that's it. If you do that, you're on the journey. You're, you're in the right place, I think. You're in the running. In the running. You're not <laughs> at the back of the race. <laughs> Ian, it's been such a joy to chat with you today. Okay, Karen. So what do I do? Say goodbye now? Goodbye it's, to all. Luck. <laughs> such a joy to talk with you. Thanks so much. Thank you. Isn't Ian fabulous? That was a conversation I had with Ian a couple of years ago at the end of 2012. It's now September 2015 and I've re-edited it to play for you. Thanks for listening. For more details about Ian Edwards and the documentary Chrysalis by Ben Matthews, go to my website, karenswain.com slash Ian Edwards. That's K-A-R-E-N-S-W-A-I-N dot com slash Ian Edwards. Remember to like us on Facebook, Accentuate the Positive Radio with Karen Swain and Blissful Beings, Reminders from Home. Thanks again. Bye for now. Happiness is you. Hey, hey. Clap along if you feel like that's what you want.